I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. We also have down the line from New York our US banking editor, Ben McClanahan. And our guest this week is John McFarlane, who's the chairman of Barclays and also chairman of the City UK lobby group. Today we'll be talking about the City UK and its latest agenda for making London more competitive. John McFarlane has been speaking to us about his agenda ahead of his first speech as chairman of City UK. Secondly, we'll be looking at the topic of TLAC, so-called Total Loss Absorbing Capacity, the latest capital measure to be decided upon by the Financial Stability Board. And finally, look at Goldman Sachs as it changes the way it hires new people. First, though, to that topic of City UK and broadly the future of the City of London, I suppose, Martin. We've been talking to John McFarlane, who's the chairman of Barclays, but also just begun as the chairman of City UK, the big lobby group here. He feels quite passionate, really, about a number of things uh, about the City of London. But he was talking to us, let's hear a first snippet about his views on Europe and what David Cameron needs to do in order to promote the interests of the City of London through membership of the EU. My sense is that, you know, how can you disagree much with staying in a reformed Europe? I can't. I just can't. And of course, we'll make that argument. Of course we back uh, Britain staying in a reformed Europe. In an unreformed Europe is a much more difficult question. You know, uh, would, you, would, you, would it be so attractive? And, and actually, I don't know the answer to that. I think on balance, probably. But it's not as compelling. So, Martin, I suppose bang in line really with what most bankers say but maybe a little bit more cautious around what if David Cameron doesn't renegotiate what we would like him to renegotiate. Yeah I mean I thought it was interesting how equivocal he was in his support for staying in the EU. Obviously overall he said instinctively we're probably better off in Europe but he did talk about the risk of the UK being marginalised if there were a two-speed Europe developing. And he did say that, you know, he had heard from people he'd been meeting recently pretty cogent arguments, as he put it, about the logic behind leaving the EU and the benefits that might bring and the alternative kind of vision of Britain's future outside the EU. And whilst he said instinctively he's in favour of staying, he wasn't as pro-European as you might have expected him to be. Now, another interesting thing he said is he thought it was time for everyone to club together and start promoting the City of London, politicians, regulators, groups like his own, to start selling Britain. He talked about putting his marketing hat on. Uh, Here's what he had to say on that. You're calling for a review. Is it the government that needs to do this? Well, I think it's everybody needs to. I I mean, in my day, we used to get Eddie George and 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 the Treasury... And some key people in the city used to get together 
to advance the interests of the city of London. You know, so I just think there needs to be a, co- a very senior coordinated. The city of UK can play a part, but I do think you kind of need the the, treas- the chancellor, the Bank of England governor, and some key people just to sort of quietly strategize. Is my own opinion. And so this idea of trying to get together a kind of almost a committee, an unofficial informal committee with people like George Osborne and Mark Carney and himself, I mean, it harks back really to the pre-crisis era, doesn't it? Well, he even mentioned Eddie George, you know, and with a nostalgic look in his eye, uh, talking about how senior people from the city would meet Eddie George and get together to see how they could advance the interests of the city. And that this is an informal gathering of key decision makers, policy makers, officials and top executives and chairmen talking about let's boost the city, let's, you know, what are are the things we can do and a chance completely off the record and behind the scenes to bash out the kind of future. Now, that may all seem old-fashioned and going back to the old days, which have been heavily criticised because they were seen as part of this light-touch regulatory culture which ultimately is blamed for contributing to the build-up to the the financial crisis. He clearly feels it's time to move on from the guilt-ridden years that we've seen post-crisis and start promoting the city. Let's move on, staying with the topic of regulation really. Caroline, you were looking over the past couple of days at what has been revealed by the Financial Stability Board on the VEX topic of TLAC, so-called total loss-absorbing capacity. This is what banks are going to need going forward in terms not only in terms of equity, but in terms of loss-absorbing debt. And broadly, the measures announced were what we expected? Broadly so, that's correct. So the point of TLAC is that it is meant to prevent another taxpayer bailout that we saw during the financial crisis. And this is really the touchstone of efforts that regulators have been busily working upon since, really, Lehman's collapse. So as you say, what it does, quite aside from banks' minimum capital requirements, this makes them put aside total loss-absorbing capacity where essentially senior debt can be bailed in. So now creditors are on the hook rather than taxpayers. The range of how much exactly banks are going to have to raise is broadly as expected. So it was widely leaked following an FSB meeting in September that the range would be between 16 to 18% of TLAC of a bank's risk-weighted assets, so 16% by 2019, rising to the 18% level by 2022. And also there's a complementary leverage ratio measurement, so TLAC would have to be 6% of a bank's leverage ratio by 2019, raising to 6.75% by 2022. It had also been leaked that there was originally an exemption for emerging market banks and that that exemption would be phased out. And indeed, we got more details about that. So there will now have to be TLAC for emerging market banks as well. They have a slightly longer deadline of 2025 to 2028. There will be acceleration, however, if a particular country's debt markets grow beyond 55% of a country's GDP. That's particularly pertinent in the case of China, of course. It's only Chinese banks currently that are on the list of so-called global systemically important banks anyway. But they did have, until now, an opt-out or rather a waiver from these TLAC requirements. And that's been dropped now. So that's that's a big change, isn't it? Exactly. So the Chinese banks didn't have to worry about TLAC up until this week. They had an exemption from it. 
that exemption was quite controversial because the FSB is meant to be putting in place the principle of a level playing field globally. So it was widely seen that this exemption had been a bit of a sop to the Chinese. I mean, arguably understandable because it's widely thought that the Chinese government will always stand behind its banks in the event of a failure. But still, the fact that the FSB has managed to get the Chinese on board with this arguably is a pretty monumental success. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Martin, you've got some strong views on TLAC, haven't you? Well, I, I think it's totally untested. And I am sceptical that regulators having the option of bailing these new hybrid securities in and wiping out billions of dollars worth of value for creditors would actually happen. Because in a crisis, typically what you see is not just one bank is an isolated case in trouble and needing to be resolved over the course of a weekend. You've got dozens of banks and huge concerns across the whole system. And if you start bailing in billions of dollars worth of TLAC loans at all of these banks, then you're suddenly spreading the systemic contagion from the banking sector to asset managers, pension funds, insurers and others. And I think regulators would be very hesitant to push that button in those circumstances. So it's unproven. And I wonder whether they would actually ever use this power. And therefore, wouldn't you be better off getting banks to hold just a higher level of equity, which is the ultimate loss absorbing capacity? Is that a fair point, Caroline? I think there's a lot of arguments that ending too big to fail is a bit of a myth. And actually, from a pragmatic and practical philosophy, a government standing behind its banks is actually a perfectly sensible thing to do. And, you know, certainly that's the Japanese philosophy, for instance. I mean, I think Carney was quite careful. Mark Carney, who is the governor of the Bank of England, also chairs the FSB. He said on Monday that ending too big to fail may never be absolute and that you can't fully insulate banks from external shocks. But I think, Martin, that there is some logic in what he says in terms of you're actually spreading risk of contagion far beyond a a particular bank with TLAC. The whole world is at risk rather than just the banks and the taxpayers. What could possibly go I remember remember how people talked about residential mortgage-backed securities and and how they spread the risk (laughs) of these mortgages up to thousands of investors all around the world and it was diversified (laughs) and therefore parceled out and what could possibly go wrong. Indeed. I think one other element that was interesting from Monday's conference that the FSB held was that Carney weighed in somewhat on whether there is such a thing as Basel IV. The banks recently have been making quite a lot of noise that TLAC plus other overhauls of prior regulation that's been on the books is actually equating to a whole new reform agenda that's just massively costly and going to weigh on their lending. So Carney actually said there is no such thing as Basel IV. It's the completion of Basel III and what we're doing is ironing out issues. Now, obviously, one can take that with a bit of a pinch of salt because they're very careful not to say that there's going to be another round of financial reform that hasn't been agreed politically on an international stage. The banks would say that things like fundamental review of the trading book are called fundamental for a reason. It's actually costing them quite a lot of money. Yeah, certainly. That's the view of people like John McFarlane and many others in the banking industry. Let's leave it there and move on to our third topic for the day. Slightly lighter hearted. Goldman Sachs has been thinking again about the way it hires junior bankers. And Ben has been looking at this story. So Ben, Goldman here has been changing the way they do things, maybe slightly more forward thinking than other banks in this respect. What exactly are they doing in terms of junior hires? Well, Laura Noonan, our colleague in London, global investment banking correspondent, had a briefing last week with David Solomon, who's a co-head of the investment bank here in New York. 
And the purpose of that was just to brief the press on exactly what they're doing to improve retention at Goldman. Because Goldman, of course, is still one of the most attractive places to work if you want to be in finance. But they are conscious that they're losing more and more of the sort of top associates um, between seven and ten years to private equity and hedge funds, to asset managers in particular, which are much less regulated, much less uh, subject to um, second-guessing and uh, strenuous regulation by a whole cluster of regulators over here. So they talked about two or three things, a more swift promotion, if you're up to it. That's uh, moving from analyst to associate within about two years. And uh, now it takes apparently five and a half years to reach uh, vice president. That's the glittering pinnacle for many people. And that's down from 7.5 years. And they're also trying to let tech do more of the donkey work, so no more tedious building of spreadsheets or putting together huge slide presentations. And what about the famous partnership level at Goldman? Is anything changing there in terms of the numbers or the speed of promotion? Well, I think it's still perceived to be um, a very narrow band of people qualified each year to advance. I remember a couple of months ago that they did hire somebody to build their sort of lending club style operation. And that that person from Discover Financial Services joined as a partner. And that that was seen to be a very rare event. It still very rarely happens. It's still the very peak, uh, the very best people internally that tend to move up. Yeah, so hiring from outside into a partner level rarely happens, but maybe this is a new way forward. Do you think that this feeds into the whole broader topic that we've been writing about in our three-day series called Beyond Banking on really the tumult that so many banks across the Western world really are going through, even the likes of Goldman Sachs, which has had a pretty successful post-crisis existence? They are finding, as you said at the beginning, in terms of hiring staff, that the competition with the likes of tech companies, for example, is so much stiffer. Do you think other Wall Street institutions are finding it potentially even tougher, given that Goldman is seen as the best place to work on Wall Street? Yeah, I think so. We have been talking to a few recruiters and uh, heads of HR, and they're all very conscious that, uh, yeah, it's just not as attractive as it used to be. Um, I asked somebody yesterday who, amongst the top graduates from the top business schools across America, are seen to be the best premier destinations by brand name and the value of the compensation offer and the strength of training program, the culture, location. And in, in addition to the top names like Goldman and Morgan Stanley, it's also companies like um, Jane Street, which is a, a company I've got to admit I hadn't heard of, but they are a prop shop that's hiring lots of people and, and it's seen to be um, you know, matching the best that uh, Goldman and Morgan Stanley in, in terms of career and pay. And uh, also Citadel is now very much at the top table. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, revolution really that's going on quietly. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Caroline here in the studio, Ben down the line from New York, and also our guest, John McFarlane. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Do look out for our special series, a three-day series called Beyond Banking, and we'll have a special podcast related to that series on Thursday. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Until next week, goodbye.